there's five in our family. So it's uh, oldest brother, Ralph, in order now, Ralph, Chris, myself, David, and Carolyn. He loaded most of us in the car at the, at the time. So next thing you know, he's you know buying rentals uh, for some of us and bought tickets and someone forget their gloves. And next thing you know, he shells out $100 to, uh, to get us up to Mount Snow. And uh, so he was just a savvy kind of street smart businessman. And he's thinking anyone that can get $100 out of Ralph Crowley on a Sunday morning has got to be doing something right. Welcome to the storm. I'm your host, Stuart Winchester. Podchusett Week continues on the storm with our second straight Massachusetts pod. If you don't think the Bay State is a great ski state, you don't know what the hell you're talking about. Before I prove that to you, I'm going to remind you to please subscribe to the free Storm Skiing newsletter at stormskiing.com and follow the storm on Instagram or Twitter at Storm Ski Journal. First up, my sponsor, Mountain Gazette. Founded in 1966, Mountain Gazette is a large format biannual print title celebrating mountain culture. If you're familiar with the traditional Mountain Gazette, you are going to be shocked when you see the new format. It is a monster. 16 and a half inches by 10 and three quarters inches. What has not changed is the incredible wide-ranging writing and show-stopping photography. I'll tell you what I mean. Issue 196, shipping as I speak, features a huge gallery titled The Last Days of Skiing in Afghanistan. Mountain Gazette connected with a photographer who captured what may be the last shots of skiing before the Taliban took over. This is the most powerful piece the magazine has done to date. But the range here is huge. Daniel Arnold, New York's most renowned street photographer, will roll out a gallery that conveys his impression of autumn in New York City. Do not miss this. You need to subscribe today to reserve your copy at mountaingazette.com. Enter code GOHIRE-10, all one word, for 10% off subscriptions. That's a new code now, GOHIRE-10. That will ensure you get that story and everything else in issue 196. Use code EASTCOAST, all one word, for 10% off everything else, including vintage magazine covers, which make great art for your home office or living room. Mountain Gazette. When in doubt, go higher. Episode 65, Jeff Crowley, President of Wachusett Mountain, Massachusetts. Massachusetts doesn't get the headlines of its northern New England neighbors, but it does probably as much to churn out new skiers as any state in the country. And it does have some pretty great ski areas. Which one is tops is usually a three-way dogfight between Jiminy Peak, Berkshire East, and Wachusett. They're all really strong, though, and I am very pleased to bring you a detailed look at the busiest of them all today. This one's a monster, so I'll get right to it. Let's go. My guest today has been the president of Wachusett Mountain, Massachusetts, for 30 years. Wachusett features 27 trails on a 1,000-foot vertical drop, served by eight lifts, including three high-speed quads. His family has managed the ski area since 1969. Wachusett is frequently acknowledged as one of the most efficient ski areas in the nation and perennially appears on Ski Magazine's reader polls as one of the top ski areas in the East. Jeff Crowley is my guest. Jeff, so good to have you on the show today. Well, thanks so much, Stuart. I know we've talked about this for a long time and I'm honored to be on your show here. 
Speaking of uh, being on the readers, poll, the guys at Stowe are probably ready to kill us. I mean, that's such an amazing area. And for us to be ahead of those guys is it's just not fair. I, I think I would have <laughs> voted for Stowe ahead of us. But uh, <laughs> oh, uh, <laughs> so, so what do you think about those reader polls? Because, you know, my take on, on the ski polls is, is yeah, it, it's it's nice to have readers opinions. But maybe there should be some sort of different weighting on the back end to sort of adjust for, well, yeah, maybe all these people really love the ski area that's closest to them, but maybe they just haven't been to Stowe. Yeah, no, that's a good point. And I forgot it was the Condé Nast that did the other one with Camelback comparing twice. So there are some flaws in some of those things, but uh, (laughs) um, it is nice too. And I think some of it is a result of going out of our way to really take care of our customers and establishing relationships. Uh, I feel like... uh, you know, we know a lot of our season pass holders by name. And I, I think that that is one of those things that, that obviously helps us smaller areas. But I, I think the folks at, at Ski really do have a, um, a bent for trying to help out some of the smaller independent guys. Yeah, I, I think, you know, for some historical perspective, I'm sure you remember this going back, you know, 20 years, there was ski and there was skiing. And it was sort of like the AP and the coaches poll in college football, where you had sort of two different takes on it. And what you would get is ski had the reader's poll and skiing had more of an editor's poll, right? Where they would take a little bit more objective look with like vertical drop and trail network and lift system and snowfall and all these kind of things. And, and so it would be two very different lists and they would sort of capture all that. But then skiing went away and I feel like ski didn't adjust to try and uh, capture those attributes in the way that skiing had. That's a good um, recap of the thing. All I know is we're delighted to be part of their their, uh, <laughs> their top ranking. So we're, we're honored to be there and we love the publication. So I hope it doesn't change. Yeah, they had a good profile of you last year. That was really nice. And this year as well, right? Uh, did, did they yet? I, I haven't gotten through the latest issue. I'm about halfway I'll through. I'll email it to you after. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I'll check that out. Well, everyone loves what you said. I know that for sure. And you opened on Saturday for the season. How did that feel? How'd that first weekend go? It's always nice to get going again. Um, you know, we did make that commitment to try to get open the day after Thanksgiving. And I think we've hit it on the last, uh, say, five or six um, holidays, even though this has been really kind of a warm fall going into it uh but we are committed to uh to uh, making uh, making that much snow and, and getting open early so um you know when you think how long our season goes now part of november and and a little into april so we're really skiing parts of six months so it almost feels like we didn't miss a miss a beat you know going right into it so it was it was really kind of a uh, i would say close to flawless opening and uh the only thing that we were intending to do, like in years past, we, we kind of copied what they do at uh, Fenway Park. We we're actually looking to sing the national anthem right at 730. My oh. brother-in-law was ready to come up and we just had a, a glitch with the sound system. So, uh, But the confetti was a nice touch this year. Um, uh, so we uh, every year we can, we can improve on the process, but it was pretty neat to open three detachables at uh, 730 on Saturday. It's so impressive, Jeff. Talk a little bit about how are you able to do that in Massachusetts? I mean, we all know it's cold up there, but it, you know, you're beating ski areas, sizable ski areas with with good snowmaking systems and enough capital to do it. You're beating them by a week, two weeks. How are you able to do that in Massachusetts? Do you have an elevation advantage? What What, what is the what is your recipe for doing that consistently year after year? I think it's one of our the, the woman that heads up our parking uh, lot operations, Chrissy says, we're all crazy. And I think that's part of it is, you know, we just have a passion for skiing 
and we're into uh, providing the best possible product for our customers whenever we can. And uh, so as soon as it, get, as it gets cold, the guys get out there and we've got an amazing snowmaking team. And, and I feel my job is to try to give them the tools that they need in order to make snow uh, whenever they can. So they can make snow in marginal conditions. I think, for, for example, this last opening was, uh, I think on average, 28 degrees. And I think they converted about 20 million gallons of water wow. um, over like a like a five day period. Most of it was super marginal, uh, but they uh, they got it out there. I mean, it's not edge to edge, but it is deep. On average, it's about two feet of snow. So wow. this uh, this should last. Unfortunately, machine made snow is really durable, mm-hmm. and that will this will last the season. Yeah, it's really impressive, no doubt, what you and your family have built Wachusett up into over the past 50 years, Jeff. Uh, but it wasn't always that way. Wachusett did not start out as a beloved ski area. It actually started out as a very dysfunctional one back in the early 60s. And then your family took over, uh, along with, I, I think, uh, uh, some other folks, but you can you can tell the story, uh, in the late 1960s. What did Wachusett look like when your family showed up? Uh, you know, it was not much to look at back then, but, you know, the state superintendent did a remarkable job with $250,000 to build um, the two T-bars, a, a, small, a small snowmaking system. There were several A-frame buildings. Uh, uh, there was a, a small base lodge with a, a fireplace that took up about a third of the, uh, the square footage in there. Um, but even before that, Stuart, um, there's a kind of a interesting history that the CCC built two ski trails uh, back during the depression in the late thirties. So they were fun, narrow trails uh, with a lot of character, almost like skiing um, upper cannon, just kind of windy trails that really use the terrain nicely. So one of those two trails is still in existence. Now the other one has really become more a a hiking trail, but uh, you know, but the state tried as hard as they could back then, um, but they didn't have the resources to, to, to actually make it go. And they finally decided to privatize the area uh, back in in 1969. What is the ski trail that still in exi- uh, that you still use? It's a balance rock trail. So um, it's oh, as you're it. looking up the hill, it's on the on the left hand side. It's kind of a narrow trail. And oh, uh, it, when you come out here, I know uh, we need to get you out here at some point. It's fun to just see if you can hang on for all four sections because. We have the auto road that bisects the ski trails, so oh. um, that makes for some interesting um, turns and hairpins and and fun. The, the, of course, it's not a, a snow engineering approved layout, but it's it's a <laughs> lot of fun. And it it ends up um, about three quarters of the way down the hill with an old stone building, which is absolutely magnificent. I know when Kelly Pollock came out here to ski, she was like, "Okay, it's a ski area, ski area," and then. As soon as she got to the Bullock Lodge, she pulled out her, her camera phone and started taking pictures because it's just a classic, um, iconic building that you would see. And, and we've got a, a farmer, um, Al Rose, Red Apple Farm, gets up there and uh, makes cider donuts oh, wow. about a quarter of the way up the mountain. So it's just a, a magical building and it's just something to, uh, to certainly experience. Was that part of the CCC build? That's right. Yeah, that was the base lodge. It was the base area, you know, just kind of more run out towards the end. So they decided not to go all the way down to the bottom <clears throat> because those guys, we think it's a big deal now to to hike up the or to take 30 runs on the, on the lift in one day or whatever yeah. you can do in one day. Um, but these guys would hike up 10 times a day um, and foot pack it. So 
that's when men were men. <laughs> well, now now we got high speed quads. So, but before we got before we get to that, I mean, it's it's interesting when you look at Massachusetts ski landscape in the late 1960s because you had a lot of ski areas that could have gone one way or the other. And I talked to Brian Fairbank about this last year, and when he got to Jiminy Peak, it probably looked about like Wachusett looked when your family showed up in the late 1960s. And there were over 100 ski areas at the time. And a lot of them I felt like could have become what Wachusa did and what Jiminy Peak did and what Berkshire East did. But most of them are long gone. So how was your family able to take this small operation that, that what I'm trying to say, there's, there's nothing inevitable about what Wachusa became, right? Your family turned it into something. How were they able to take a two T-bar operation that had had some problems with snowmaking, had some problems with management, and turn it into what is widely considered one of the best run ski areas in the country. Well, it's nice to just say that, you know, I think so much of it is just due to um, plenty of money, obviously, it was well capitalized. Uh, there was a lot of debt that went into uh, to making this happen. My, my father, um, you know, borrowed as much money as he possibly could. And uh, we actually, uh, my, my oldest brother, Ralph, um, got involved with uh, forming a, um, a highly leveraged limited partnership in order to get a lot of our friends to, uh, <clears throat> to invest in this thing. And they did just because they, um, they liked the, uh, the Crowley family. And it turns out it was, it was one of the best investments that they, they made because they were able to get the investment tax credit, take advantage of the passive losses, and they also get a return of their capital. So it was really a great funding scheme back in the, in the eighties when interest rates were, um, 18% that was under the, uh, the Carter administration. So it was, it was definitely a difficult time. And uh, you kind of couple that with some of the, the um, El Nino winter that we had uh, that year. It was, it was a struggle the first few years, but I think a lot of it was just the hard work, grit and determination that the, uh, that the family put into, uh, into running the, uh, the area back then. Um, I, I, I have to uh, also mention um, Joe Bryan, a guy that my father helped, uh, he kind of put us uh, in charge of, of running the area for us. He was a, a local guy from Princeton, and uh, he ended up working the seven days a week in order to make this place what it is now. And, and everyone just kind of committed themselves, just threw themselves at this thing. And here it is. Just a lot of hard work and determination, you know. <laughs> and that's compounded when you think back, Jeff, on the technology you have now and all the learning that's been done in this sort of industrial machine feeding the ski industry, none of that was there back then. You didn't have the high-speed lifts. You didn't have the advanced snowmaking. Um, you didn't have all these, you know, the, the advanced grooming, all these different mitigation factors that you have now to be able to create a modern ski experience, which, which makes me ask the question, why did your dad do this to himself? Why did he, why did he buy Wachusett? Yeah, good question. You know, he... Um... He took us skiing uh, up to, to Mount Snow. He was actually a really good hockey player back in the day. And unfortunately, we were terrible hockey players and, uh, you know, weak ankles and everything else. So we, we convinced him to, uh, to take us skiing. So he, he loaded up the station wagon, took us up to uh, I'm sorry, to Jeff, Snow. when you say us, can you just, can you just, oh, sorry, us, yeah. the clan it was is. The, it was the, uh, the family. So uh, there's five in our family. So it's uh, oldest brother, Ralph, in order now, Ralph, Chris, myself. David and Carolyn. So, um, 
I'm not sure who exactly was in there at the time, but, uh, you know, he loaded most of us in the car at the, at the time. And, um, um, so next thing you know, he's, you know, buying rentals uh, for some of us and bought tickets and someone forgot their gloves. And next thing you know, he shells out a hundred dollars to, uh, to get us up to Mount Snow. Mm-hmm. And, uh, so he was just a, a savvy kind of street star, uh, smart businessman. And, He's thinking anyone that can get a hundred dollars out of Ralph Crowley on a Sunday morning has got to be doing something right. So, <laughs> and that's about the same time as the Commonwealth of Massachusetts uh, was looking to privatize the ski area. So um, he and his his buddy Norm Latart, who was a um, a retail operator kind of near the Concord area, Acton, Mass, um, uh, bid on the thing, and uh, they were. They were the uh, the high bidders, and uh, it turns out they they turned this thing around and, and worked together for a while. Then we ended up buying um, Norm out, which is a another story in itself. And your father was already a successful businessman. Is that right? Did he had he already started the Polar Beverages thing? Yeah, the neat thing is uh, Polar is actually uh, going into the fifth generation right now. Uh, there's uh, it's been around since uh, 1882. Oh my gosh! And uh, so is a neat picture of our great-grandfather. Uh, his nickname was Boss Crowley. And uh, so he was actually uh, bottling soft drinks. And what do you know, for a while, um, you know, during Prohibition, he was actually making whiskey, too. So there's a, there's a wonderful picture of him cruising around Worcester with a horse and buggy and with, a, you know, probably 20 bottles of Crowley straight Balbrook whiskey. <laughs> And, uh, and he would just be selling those door to door. This is obviously before <laughs> Prohibition. Right. And, uh, you know, and if he was half as convincing as my sister, you know, he probably had everyone in Worcester was uh, like half in the bag, you know. <laughs> so it's a, it's a really cool story. And, and as one of my brothers would say, you know, there was another Irish uh, family in, in uh, Massachusetts that went on to become presidents and, and senators and everything else. But we're still running a soft drink company in the ski area, but uh, that other <laughs> other family obviously was the Kennedys. But uh. he was way ahead of his time. I mean, now there's all these alcohol delivery apps, and and they act like they're putting a man on the moon. But but uh, your family was doing that a hundred and some years ago. <laughs> yeah, that's the Irish in us, I guess. Right, got to get that booze out there. Oh well. Well, a little less scrutiny, I think, on you than the Kennedys. So I, I actually think right. you got the better end of it. And I don't think the Kennedys have a ski area. So, uh, right. so I, you know, I don't know how old you were when your family bought Wachusett, but what was that like to suddenly have a ski area that you just had the run of? It was super exciting. You know, we uh, we really, you know, thought that uh, we, we hit the ball out of the park and, and uh, we're all delighted to be to be part of it. And, um, you know, what's interesting is my father never treated us any differently. You know, we would still be like most kids that age, like 15 or whatever old, it was, I think it was closer to 12 when we first got involved here, but you know, we'd be out of control skiers and the patrollers would still pull our passes just for mm. doing something wrong. And my father, you know, wouldn't weigh in. He was just like, okay, you got to deal with, with the repercussions on, on some of your behaviors here. So, uh, but then he, he quickly put us to work here and, and, uh, and, um, he, he took advantage of the child labor laws, that's for sure. <laughs> but one of my favorite memories, you know, you're talking about the the old days at the at the ski area. I think I was closer to 25 at the time. And, and uh, um, back then, you know, we'd ski till 10 o'clock at night and then we'd shut the lift off and then go in and, and have a, 
I uh, a beer or two afterwards, and mm-hmm. that's where I met um, my now wife, uh, oh, Maureen wow. Sullivan, at the time. And and uh, so then after after a drink, he'd start to say, "Hey, you know how everyone gets talking after um, a cocktail and says, hey, well, I can ski like this.'" I we said, well, "Let's just settle this now." So we went back out and we would turn <laughs> the lift back on and turn the lights back on right. and ski you know, for another hour or so and, and just had a good old time. So it was, uh, it was uh, a fun time. So I, I had to put a plug in for Maureen as a, as a uh, radiation therapist at, at Mass General. It was good for her to get out and, and just really enjoy kind of the recreation as opposed to, you know, kind of dealing with uh, some of the cancer patients. So, so right. the good old days, you know. <laughs> it Was that late night skiing sanctioned by, uh, by, your, by your dad? Um, he was kind of a fun guy, uh, okay. growing up. So there was like a, a, like a one week statute of limitations. And so we could tell him the story later on. So he got a kick <laughs> out of here. <laughs> so, so you started working at the mountain. What was your first job there? You know, one of the things uh, I was thinking about this is the, um, I thought that the ski instructors looked really cool. So I said, I, I've got to be a ski instructor. So at age 15, I signed up and, and, uh, one of the things I was doing is I was just kind of in some of these different uh, clinics, kind of standing on the hill, listening to the guy tell me how to ski, and I'm watching my buddies kind of bomb by the line that I'm that I'm on, and I'm thinking, this isn't really working out well for me. And unfortunately, I think a lot of times ski schoolers do too much standing around and not not as much skiing. So okay. I think that I, I, I got rid of my ski instructor sweater and then went back out to skiing with my buddies. And so I, I, I started doing everything from back in the day, we would actually be stapling the lift tickets on oh, wow. and then would help repair the lift tickets. I mean, that helped repair the, um, the T-bars and then working in the cafeteria. So we we're kind of doing it all. You're essentially following the crowd, what little crowd we had through the, uh, through the process. So take us through it. I mean, you're president of the ski area now. You started working there. It sounds like about 50 years ago, take us through all your different positions leading up to president of the mountain. One of the things that, that you know, as I say, we, we started off there and, and um, just to back up a little bit uh, and, and some of the jobs that we had was uh, starting off at Polar back in the day. Uh, my father uh, made us work or made me work with my brother third shift over at Polar. So I did that for a couple of summers. That was effectively like a it was like a 12-hour shift working all summer long to, to get the soft drinks um, cranked out. So then I, uh, I decided that the, the, um, I would rather be in the ski business. So I, I, I explained that to my father, and, and he, was, uh, he was understanding. Uh, ended up uh, jumping in the car and driving up through Vermont and just um, applied for jobs just so I could understand how other ski areas did it. And uh, lo and behold, I got a job. Um, for Lift Engineering, which is the on ski lift company, uh, and they they were doing a lift. It must have been the late 70s uh, up at um, Mount Snow. It was their base to summit. Uh, I think it was a triple at the time. So uh, that enabled me to work for them for about three summers. So ended up getting on the construction crew and, and uh, uh, helicopter crew. And so we were installing lifts at Mount Bachelor. We did uh, most of the lifts at A Basin. Oh, wow. And so we had a chance to work at probably a dozen or so different ski areas across the country. And it was, it was an eye-opening experience. And it was good to experience different um, uh, work cultures at different ski areas and really get a, a better understanding of how that works. So um, I'm glad that I, I made that switch. And I, I'd still be driving a forklift at Polar if I stuck around. <laughs> <laughs> so, 
<laughs> so you, you go out and kind of see the wider world and then come back and, and focus on Wachusett. And at what point did you decide that, okay, I want Wachusett to be my career because ski business is hard. You know, you're dealing with a lot of external factors. You're dealing with weather. You're dealing with people. You're dealing with crowds, equipment breakdowns. I mean, you name it. And, and then there's, you know, the, the fact that you can only make money four or five months a year. So, so what made you say, okay, this, this is what I want to do. And it's not, you know, not only as opposed to going back to the, to the, uh, polar beverages, but you could have gone and done anything. Right. So what made you decide to stick with this as a career? I mean, uh, we're all passionate skiers and we just love it. And we're lucky that, that we were born on first base and, and afforded this opportunity to work at this place. I mean, it really, uh, has become part of our, our lifestyle, our fabric. And, um, uh, so we're just essentially put our, our heart and soul into it. I work here with, uh, with Carolyn. I worked with David and sadly, um, my younger brother is, is, um, is wrestling with a progressive, uh, palsy. So oh, he is, um, he's in, he's in kind of a failing condition, a little, little bit compromised. And it's just so sad that, you know, he went on, he was, you know, a really astute, um, sharp guy and he was actually uh, chair of the board of directors at NSA for a while. And, and, uh, and it's just sad to see him falling apart, but our, our family is, is uh, passionate about the ski area. Um, and we just actually love being part of this thing. So it was, it was an easy decision just to, to, um, make this my life. So take me through the progression. You, you get back from your kind of tour of different ski areas and, and you start working, focusing in on what you sit full time. What's your path to your current job? Yeah, the um, part of it, too, is I knew, obviously, when I was in, in um, just finishing up high school that I wanted to be part of the ski industry. So, of course, I found a, a, a college up in uh, well, what is now called Northern Vermont University it was a Johnson State College back in the day. So it was it was quite close to Smuggler's Notch and Stowe. And uh, so we got on the ski team up there and uh, just took all the classes in ski area management and really just uh, kind of dug right into it and did internships and really kind of get a, a better understanding how the, the business worked from the uh, academic end. And it was it was a, a decent education, even though it was a, a poison ivy school, not the ivy league that uh, my buddies all go to. But it, it actually it worked out well and, and prepared me uh, to come down here and, and work in all the different jobs here at the ski area and working under the mentorship of, uh, of Joe O'Brien and uh, finally got to the point where Joe was like, okay, I think you guys have got this thing under control. Time for me to move on now. So he's since moved on to running like a, a pellet stove uh, business. So, so, and then that's when, when we all took over. So Carolyn and I are, are doing this day to day and we've effectively done every job. And it's one of those things I was thinking about this last night is, you know, sometimes you see these uh, shows, the undercover boss and, and uh, then the guy breaks down into tears after yeah. he's asked to do some sort of, you know, reasonably difficult job. And, and, uh, we all joke that like, yeah, bring it on. We could, we could deal with that. <laughs> I, don't think, I don't think that we would be undercover for very long, but, uh, <laughs> um, you know, the, having done just about every job here, uh, really helped us out. You know, we, my father had us working, um, night shift doing the stomaching, the grooming overnight. So you really just got a general sense of how everything works. And how involved do you get in those sorts of things these days? Snowmaking, grooming? Um, 
you know, I, I try to stay out of their way. I, I um, will just go in and, and shoot the breeze with the guys and, and uh, you know, high five them when they've got things done and, and uh, um, you know, buy them lunch or whatever. But I mean, I, I think as myself is now is more kind of a, a cheerleader. When we first put it together back in 82, I had to know everything about how to fix a lift and how to do all that. And fortunately, we've got an amazing team now that they can do everything. So, um, as I say, our job is just to uh, effectively give them the tools that they need to get the job done. You know, whether it's, you know, more snow guns or, or more snowmobiles or whatever the hell they need. You know, we just we just want to try to make their their job easier. And I, I think that having grown up in the business, you, you realize how you'd like to be treated in those jobs you know, with the respect and not hammered because these guys are working hard. So we try to treat them with the respect that they deserve and um, and just try to make their job as, as easy because it is, as you say, it's very difficult. Mm-hmm. And are, are you, I'm curious, as as we hear about the hiring struggles all around the industry, are, are you having a hard time staffing up for this winter or do you have enough longtime folks that are committed to watch you sit that have come back year after year that that you've been able to to staff up pretty easily. Yeah, we do have a lot of returning employees, fortunately. So um, we're we're quite lucky there, you know. So we're not having to to retrain a whole new cadre, but it does seem like uh, things are a little bit on the on the lighter side. Uh, one of the um, kind of unintended consequences of of uh, not selling all the season passes is in order for someone now to get a season pass. They have to get a job here, so mm. um, that that is one kind of bright note of not being able to supply all those uh, season passes. But uh, for the most part, we've got a, an amazing team of people that have been uh, working for us for over over 20 years. So it just makes our lives that much easier when you've got all these returning folks that, you know, and unlike some of our colleagues up north, where they're they're like Stratton, for example, I think is is busing employees from. Uh, Springfield, Vermont, over to their ski resort. Yeah. So we're lucky that these guys can all, and for a lot of these guys, it's their first job. So they're all just delighted to be part of it. Well, it's still very much a family operation. So talk a little bit, Jeff, about sort of your zone of authority and then Caroline, and and then also about the next generation coming in. Because as I understand from Sean Sutner's article last week, the next generation of the Crowley family is very invested in, in continuing to keep this a family operation. Right. Yeah. It's kind of like some of the other folks that you've had on the podcast. I do a lot of the, uh, the out, outside activities just because that was uh, my background in the lifts, the snowmaking, the grooming. Um, and then when David uh, moved on, I took over um, the, uh, the food service operation. Uh, we all participate in uh, banking, I get more involved with the, the insurance uh, relationships. Um, Ralph and Chris weigh in on occasion, you know, from a, from afar uh, when they when they get involved. But uh, and then Carolyn, um, who bless her heart, works um, if she could. Uh, now Stuart, she would be working eight days a week. She's uh, <laughs> she's amazing, so so dedicated. So she's got uh, the the retail uh, marketing. Um, uh, you know all the customer service functions so she's uh, she's a busy woman uh, in addition to uh, also being on the on the board at uh, NSA as well so wow. and she's got ski school so she's a she's a driven woman have you met her yet and by the way it's Carolyn 
she, oh. would, she, would punch, she would punch you in the arm if you called her Caroline. Okay, so. you, you should hear me yeah. try to pronounce uh, Worcester. Um, so I heard that on Thompson. Uh, <laughs> well, so, 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 yeah. <laughs> uh, send Carolyn my uh, apologies in advance. Um, and uh, no, I have not. I have not met her yet. I will look forward to that. And and I and I, I'm also also love to to meet the new generation. So tell us about the family members who are leading what you said into the future. That's right. Thanks. Um, each one of us, um, David, Carolyn, and myself, have one of our our kids in here. So um, uh, David started with uh, David Jr. and he's uh, uh, operations manager and. Um, he uh, is the um, proud parent of a, his second child. So he's uh, spent a lot of time um, with the with the baby, which he's afforded to now. And you know, back in the day, I think we we were uh, Carolyn. I think gave birth and was probably at work the next day. But uh, mm-hmm. times have changed a little bit. But th- that's okay. And I've got my daughter uh, Courtney, who uh, went to Stratton Mountain School and has probably been in every um, ski mountain in the east. And I think she's experienced the French fries at every cafeteria in these. So she's, a, she's an expert on those. And she she's uh, heading up the group sales operation here. And uh, then there's uh, Chris Stimson, um, who is an incredible uh, skier and ended up uh, uh, doing an internship at Telluride. And uh, so he's uh, um, kind of taking over the marketing operation here now. So uh, obviously, we're in good hands with this group. Really proud of all of these guys. So. I think part of it is it's kind of like the way my father transitioned. A lot of times we'd be in a meeting and he would just effectively kind of stand up without even saying goodbye. And I was thinking that's a little bit of foreshadowing. You know, you could see someday that, and sadly he passed away when he was about 72 years old. Mm-hmm. He, you know, he never really said goodbye. That was that was it. He'd just be gone. And so it just enabled us to kind of step into the role. So many times you see a, a founder that just won't let go. So I'm doing my best to... Um, to get out and ski and, and travel a little bit and uh, let these guys um, kind of take over. And I'm really curious about this this dynamic of a family business. How do you how do you make sure that they earn those jobs and, and don't just get them because they're part of the family, right? Because I've talked I've I've spoken with another independent scary operator, and he would like his children to be involved, but he was very explicit with me and said, "Look, I'm going to send them out to go." work for someone else for a while and figure it out because I, I don't want them to, to just feel entitled to this. And, and I don't want the people around us who've worked for us for a long time to feel that we just hand this to them either. Is that something you think about? And is that, is that something you've had a plan to deal with as far as, um, you know, in the same way that you went out and worked at a bunch of different places and worked all around the country and, and kind of learned the mechanics of it. Is that, is that something you think about? Yeah, that's. Uh, I'm glad you brought that up. That's one of the uh, one of the things that we've already done. David, for example, uh, was working out at Jackson Hole. I think it was for a couple of winters out there. So he worked the tram and and uh, did some food service operations. So he got some some really good kind of background as well. Uh, Courtney spent time uh, working at at Stratton um, in their marketing department and uh, really had a good understanding of that. And she actually was was teaching for a while. So that's obviously, it's a good education. And, and Chris did the same at, at, at Telluride. So I'm, I'm pleased that that's kind of the unwritten rule that we have in the family that they do need to go outside and, and uh, um, learn under someone else and just make sure that they can really hold down a job on their own rather than uh, coming to work for us. And I, I, 
I'd like to think that they are commanding the respect in their positions that uh, we certainly have to keep an eye on that. So it seems like you've, the, the family has really set itself up to continue this tradition of the family owning, managing, running, watch use it at a very high level. I mean, just going back in time here, Jeff, and as you, if you can in, in, imagine yourself as the, as your 15 year old self or whatever it was in 1969, and you have this little scary with two T-bars and it's one of many scariest in Massachusetts. C- could you ever have imagined Wachusett becoming what it is, one of the top skiers in the state and, and, and this place that just draws hundreds of thousands of skier visits and, and manages them very well? And what's that, be- I guess, what's that been like to watch that grow? And, and would you ever have expected it to become this? It's one of those things that um, I think it's actually become almost a household name uh, when you, even when you go out west, you know, there's a lot of people that got their start at, at Wachusett. Uh, you remember uh, Dave Benjamin, who was uh, heading up SIA for the longest time, uh, was a marketing manager here, a ski instructor, and another good uh, mentor to us here. And uh, he went out, you know, he's down in uh, Washington, D.C. now, but there's folks all over the country. If you if you go uh, to any resort and, and you've got a Wachusett sticker on your helmet or whatever, um, it's a good conversation starter. I heard you and, and Sean talking about the, the Wawa Wachusett jingle, which <laughs> I won't um, uh, offend your listeners by trying to sing it, but it's actually, it's a copy of the, the Wawa Tusi that your parents might have heard growing up. It's, okay. uh, I'll have to send you a, a copy of that song, but <laughs> it's the Wawa that really catches you. And it, it's one of those iconic jingles that uh, does uh, stick in your mind. And uh, we joke that fortunately we're just a seasonal business, so that people just have to listen to it for six months, whether it's on the on the radio or on the on the TV. But it definitely catches your attention, and you know to turn your head uh, so you can see the Wachusa TV ad that uh, might be be appearing on on your show here. So um, it's it's remarkable, and and um, yeah, yeah, I often think that it's too bad that uh, Ralph Senior couldn't come back now and see how much better it is, even when he he left. But mm-hmm. uh, it's it's just. Uh, it's really fantastic to see how well this has turned out. And to whom can we credit the Wawa Chusa song? You know, it was a um, some marketing guy that came out and said, "I've I've got to I've got to see your folks in, in marketing." So he sat them all down and he played the jingle, and they all looked at him like the guy was nuts. And he kept <laughs> uh, kept playing it several times, and uh, and it just it stuck. And so we're making some variations on the thing and it's a pretty effective jingle. And, um, but at one point we joked, we said, okay, let's do a poll. Um, some of you people don't want the jingle and some of you do want the jingle and coming to find out it was about 50, 50 that, that really, um, didn't want the, uh, the jingle, but we just, we hung with it just because it, it does cut through all the clutter, so to speak. Was that the right call? Yeah, what the hell? You know, it, it still has, it's got Sean talking about it with you, so why not why not keep it going? Right? <laughs> Two podcasts in a row. So, right. going back to this efficiency thing, how many skier visits do you do in an average winter, Jeff? Uh, roughly three hundred and seventy-five thousand. Last year we had four hundred four, um, and one of the neat things about that now is in order to really thank the. Uh, the crew that works so hard. We've got roughly 40 full-time year-rounders or folks that have worked over a thousand hours throughout the course of the winter. And those folks um, participate in the skier visit bonus. So when we do hit that that number, rather than just mm-hmm. saying, okay, thank you guys. Um, 
we ended up uh, writing checks to those and we actually grossed it up a little bit to take care of taxes. So nice. all those 40 people end up getting a check for about $5,000, maybe even a little bit more. So it's just one of those um, thank yous to the staff because those are the folks that really are in the trenches and, and making sure that this place does as well as it does. I mean, it's remarkable. So so let's put this in context. 405,000 skier visits. How big is your ski area acreage wise? That's roughly 130, 130 acres. Okay. So, you know, th- these are numbers, you know, I, I, I talked to the GM at Whitefish, Montana a couple of weeks ago and Whitefish has 3000 acres and they do 400,000 skier visits. Right. So, right. so you're, 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 what you said is a machine, right. And, and you're, you're just, you've become so good at putting people through the machine. And I don't mean to say that in a way that like it doesn't have soul or it's not a great area. I just mean you've got the efficiency thing down. And I've seen, I've been reading these business publications and prep for this interview. I've seen profit margins described as being as high as 30 or 40%. Um, I believe the industry average is somewhere around 10, 15%. You said you were quoted somewhere as saying you have the rental shop experience down to 10 minutes, which any, anytime I even walk by a rental building, I get nervous because I, I think about what it's like to be in there. And and you, you've just optimized every part of the experience to just keep people moving, right? Which is what they want when they're skiing. So just talk in general about your approach to efficiency and, and how you as a, as a group, the Wachusett's management team, has been able to, to take apart the ski experience and rebuild it in a way that keeps people moving, keeps people happy all day, all season. Yeah, well, I was trying to uh, think about how, you know, it's become part of our DNA. And one of the things is, you know, our father had us uh, making folding boxes back when we were little kids and we would do that in our bedrooms and throw them out the window and he would take them back to Polar and these would be uh, just for the, uh, the glass bottles. So he had us, uh, really working on efficiencies and us all work at the plant at some point. So we really kind of understood the idea of production and getting things done in a kind of a lean and mean way. And uh, the other thing that that factors into it is we'd look at how, uh, what a nice job our mother did throwing the frequent cocktail parties and dinner parties, and she would be a, a gracious host. And so I think that if you combine the efficiencies, you know, with the uh, entertainment capabilities that, that she had, it, it's a, it kind of sets us up nicely for, for running the ski area. So even though we are um, having a lot of people go through here, we had snow engineering uh, laid the place out back in the day just to make sure that the, that the appropriate ski densities were taking place on the trails. So, you know, the trails are not overridden with, uh, with too many people. And we also make sure that the lift line does not exceed on a peak day, it's going to be maybe 12 minutes. So we do have plenty of uphill capacity. There's a, there's a really good balance. So um, it even though it is busy, it's just a, kind of a consistent busy. So, but you can get here. Like for example, we open at 7:30 in the morning, so you can get plenty of runs in. We've got a group of guys that get there 10 by 10 in the morning. So, mm-hmm. and because of these efficiencies and the way that we're focused in on on being uh, reasonably good business people, is that we can achieve some some respectable margins that you cited the kind of a, a high uh, gross margin back then. The, the net is a, a different story. Still, we're dealing with, uh, you know, the minimum wage approaching $15 an hour, uh, ever increasing higher insurance costs 
food costs are going crazy, energy costs. So no matter what, it, it, you name it, everything is going up. So we're just doing our best to kind of, you know, keep it profitable. And the neat thing is that the fact that if we do have a, a lousy winter, uh, we've got the, uh, the behemoth polar, the mothership that's always uh, ready there to support us. And, and um, we often joke that we're kind of hedging our bets now. If the climate change is continues to be as tough as it, it has been, that uh, you know we'll just be selling more seltzer than we will uh, making snow. So um, I think it's a, it actually is a pretty good business model, and it's really worked out well. Well, I'm, I'm uh, optimistic and hopeful that the ski area will be able to make it work for a long, long time. I, I think in in addition to all those efficiencies that you just went through in this sort of uh, a very deliberate management style, you also have an advantage of 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 location next to a very passionate ski culture. And, and Sean Sutner and I talked about this last week on the podcast, and he was just telling me about what a tremendous ski town Worcester was. So talk about that relationship between what you sit in the town and how important those locals are to your long-term success. Yeah, the neat thing about this now, uh, Stuart, is that we there's about 8 million people within about an hour's drive. So we actually have clientele that will come down from Southern New Hampshire, mm. uh, from the Cape, Eastern Connecticut, Rhode Island. So we've got uh, a lot of folks that uh, call this their their home mountain. Obviously, we grew up in Worcester. We love the uh, the city. And we, we try to give back as much as possible. The other part of that is that every afternoon, we've got a really busy school group program that uh, Dave Benjamin helped start back in the day with um, 1,500 kids coming out here. So if you look at our colleagues up north, uh, they're kind of kicking back at 4 o'clock and uh, you know, getting ready to kind of think about the next day whereas we're just getting overrun by all these kids that are coming in. And the neat thing is we keep it affordable for them. So they're, they're, I think their their visits are, are close to $20 for the day. And they, the teachers love it, you know, because they say it's a great way for, you know, it kind of breaks down all the clicks on the bus ride out here is the kids, the geeks are riding with the band members and the, you know, the jocks are playing and they're all kind of skiers. And it, they really love the interaction that all these kids have and, and so we're creating all these new skiers that are, you know, moving on to Killington. And then from there, they'll go out to Sun Valley and all these other resorts. So it really is a, a great feeder area. And the neat thing is ultimately they come back here when they're 70 years old. They say, OK, I've done all that. So now I, I need to come back and just enjoy what you said again. It seems like you have a very big contingent of daily skiers and and you have you've done a very good job of, of breaking down the way you think about it as far as you know you have those that early morning retiree set and they come get their 10 by 10 and then you have you know the the school groups in the afternoon and then you have the park kids at night or whatever it is um just talk a little bit about about how you've been able to to maximize the use of the hill by just running it bell to bell like that and 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 focusing on and knowing these different groups of skiers and what they want and the different kinds of experience they expect and some of it is just uh, because the market is different. We put on different music, you know. So first thing in the morning, we've got the uh, Sinatra station playing as these old timers uh, come through here. You know, some of the guys, uh, we've got a, a character named Everyday. I nicknamed him Everyday Ed. He, I think last year he skied 110 days. Wow. And uh, it, it's just it's such a neat group of guys. So as uh, Sean mentioned the other day, um, those folks move on. Then we've got a lot of the um, homeschoolers that are coming in, which um, it's unfortunate that we weren't homeschoolers. These lucky guys are able to get up there and, and ski a lot of times. Um, I ran into a, 
an insurance executive yesterday that comes out here and he likes to ski till 11 o'clock and then shoot into work after. Um, so there's, uh, after that, then the school groups come in and then the night league racers come in. So we've got one of the busiest night league racing leagues in the country. So there's 150 folks that will race Monday through Thursday night. They do that nine weeks in a row. So we just try to, um, cater to all different markets and we've got a wonderful uh, park that's up there and have developed some incredible skiers and riders to come out of that. So we try to do everything we can with the exception of uh, having uh, catering to you uh, without the, the glades because I know that's one of your hot buttons. So you're the only guy that is going to be dissatisfied with this, this area. 405,000 skier visits and that one one is going to drag you all the way down the ski pole, Jeff. Um, so, so I want to talk about Sutner for a minute. And so Sean Sutner, he was on my podcast last week. He is a ski columnist for the Worcester Telegram and Gazette. He's been doing it for a long, long time. I think he's one of the best local ski journalists in the country. And unfortunately, we don't have many of those anymore. The, the ski industry, as I say all the time, has not weathered the transition to digital very well. But Sutner has hung on. He's very well connected. He skis a lot. He uphills a lot. Uh, he knows all the people. He has good ear for a story. Just from your point of view, Jeff, as a as a ski area operator owner, talk about how important it is to have these local reporters who know you, who know your skiers, who have the context of the broader industry, who can tell your story in a way that maybe a brand couldn't do itself. Yeah, he uh, he and his predecessors did a wonderful job. Of course, knowing Bill Clue and and Roger Leal, they all did a good job. And and as you say, they they do a good job of kind of holding your feet to the fire. You know, they if you do something wrong, they can let you know it in a column or uh, just personally. So it's it's nice that we're it's unfortunate that we're losing all of those those great reporters. But obviously, a lot of it is being done online now. But Sean is just a, a really sharp guy that, and I really respect his opinion. Um, the one disagreement I would have to have after I was hiking yesterday and listening to the podcast, he um, he convinced you that that Berkshire East has more vertical than we do, and I think we we have them by about twenty feet. So that's Ooh. important to us little ski air operators here in, in Central Mass. So, and I, I think the so that puts us number two, depending on whether Catamount is is uh, in Massachusetts or New York. So we really need to drill down. It kind of reminds me of the of the, the classic uh, taste great, less filling uh, battle that they had between Killington and Sunday River. Those guys were going at it back in the day when Skip King mm-hmm. would challenge the folks at, at, at Killington. So maybe we could just uh, do something now with with Berkshire East. You know, they, they're, I have a ton of respect for what those those folks are doing. At, at Catamount and, and at, at Berkshire East. super good operators and, and great guys. Now, I heard you threw down the gauntlet on fries and said, John Schaefer of Berkshire East, his fries cannot match up to yours. Do you, do you stand by that? <laughs> this is very important, right? Um, <laughs> I'm not sure. The, we, uh, we do, we are passionate about the food product. A lot of people, you know, I think they, once again, back to the ski magazine, I think we were voted one of the best on mountain food operations, say in the East. And a lot of it is we're down there every day eating, you know, so in another hour, I'll be down there uh, checking on the food and we don't want to eat lousy food. And, and so we just insist that we, we, um, you know, go to our suppliers, whether it's Cisco, PFG or, or U.S. Foods, 
or Gordon's now and just make sure that we're able to, first of all, get the product. And, and you know, where Courtney gets heavily involved in, in tasting all the, the chicken nuggets and, and we just don't want to serve lousy stuff. So that's a big part of it. And, you know, whether, whether a kid um, makes a decision on what area he wants to go to is, uh, is uh, I don't think the French fries will really dictate it. Although a lot of times people will want to go to the place that has the, the waffles. We do have the waffles, mm. you know, that, that group that's out of with the Belgian waffle that, mm -hmm. that, that they do. Those are incredible. And, and some parents will say that the kid wants to go to Wachusett because they have the waffles. At Wachusett. <laughs> <laughs> now, now, we got to do check out that vertical claim because I, I've never been able to get my tracking app to to match up with the uh, 1050 or 1150 or whatever it is they're claiming up there. So I don't know if I'm missing a nuance. So I, I don't want to go after them on that because I, it, it, there might be like some beginner area that goes down somewhere or something, but, um, but yeah, we, we, we got to sort that out. Yeah, this is serious. So the, um, go to the website, mountainvertical.com mm -hmm. and uh, you'll actually see that um, we're actually less than a thousand. So I'm going to just to kind of, um, take the uh, magic uh, uh, of the the, uh, the genie there, but it actually will tell you with the vertical drop of all these different skiers throughout the the country, and then that's where I I, I checked it out again yesterday. You, you can take a page out of the the Michigan skiing operators that I interviewed at Cabrefe Peaks a few weeks ago, and and just scoop some dirt from the bottom of the mountain and put it on the top <laughs> of the mountain, Jeff. Yeah, <laughs> the <laughs> landfill uh, near us is actually getting almost as tall as we are. That kind of worries me. Is it really? Well, no, not that big, but I mean, I'm just kidding. Um, <laughs> yeah, so where the hell are we now? What choose it? No, we um, have we, we actually have a bunch of uh, skiers built on garbage dumps back in Michigan. So, um, so I, I uh, what choose it? Excuse me. What choose it? Nine hundred and forty-five feet. That's a thousand vertical uh, okay. in marketing feet, and then Virtuaris uh -huh. is listed as nine twenty-three. So, hmm. uh, there you go. All right. According well, to this this source. <laughs> yeah. You know what? I thought 900 is, uh, is, is plenty. I think most people, most people's legs got about a thousand in them if they're lucky. So let's, uh, let's talk about the mountain. I, I want to start at the top and you have these areas listed on your trail map very clearly as old growth forest area. And, and I believe this goes back to a lawsuit by the Sierra club that, that actually they seem, it seemed like they were, were being pretty aggressive and actually wanted to terminate your lease with the state over bootleg in quotes trails that have been cut through that old growth forest in the upper mountain. So I guess just take us back. What, what was, what was all this uh, drama and lawsuit about? How did you resolve it? Why is the old growth forest label there? Just take us through that whole thing. Back in 93, uh, we were looking to uh, do an expansion. It was about 19 acres and we were looking to add another trail off the, off the top. And uh, which, some of the which way, like skiers right of Smith Walton uh skiers uh left of smith so down that that face okay yeah and um that's when we had the this group uh that decided that they wanted to oppose it and i've heard various theories one of them was that it was a it was a fundraising effort that they would go around into um boston area and knock on doors and say that which is it intends to clear x number of trees mm -hmm. could you donate some money to you know to fight that and um, a lot of people <clears throat> helped him out on that. But we had uh, one rogue individual that went up and, and uh, hand cut a, uh, a ski trail back in the day. And I think that's the thing that really upset the folks at, at um, Sierra Club. Um, 
but now it's it's turned out to be a uh, a hiking trail. Our customers obviously were disappointed that we were getting you know dragged through the ringer for I think it was ten years. It took us uh, about a million dollars to to increase our capacity. That's what we're looking to do. Is is uh, our capacity at that time was 3,200 skiers at one time, and uh, now it's it's approved at 4,125. So we were just looking to avoid the turnaways. Um, it was just a simple business solution. You know, when you're turning customers away at nine o'clock in the morning, um, it just doesn't sit well with you. You could see the the disappointed look on the, the kid's face so as they were having to drive back to Providence or wherever they were coming from. So we just did it to just improve and, and make the, the ski area better. I do, you, you kind of have to step back and, and understand Sierra Club and some of these uh, nonprofits that are opposed to it. And basically is that's the reason New England looks as nice as it does is there's a lot of people that, that want to protect and preserve things. So things are not you know, max out development and clear cut and, and ugly as, as the Dickens. So um, you kind of have to kind of step back and, and take a look at that. So it, it, it does look nice at the end of the day. We're, we're happy with the development. Do you think that the stance of these environmental groups has has evolved somewhat over the years? Because this is I haven't done a lot of research on this, but looking at it from a distance, it seems like it's impossible to build a new ski area in New England now. I, I would say it's, I, I can't imagine how anyone would be able to pull it off. However, hmm. th- there seems to be more openness or less opposition to scary expansions. You have four ongoing in, in New Hampshire right now and, and a possible fifth if, if Les Otten can get this balsams thing moving. Um, and then you also have the rescued ski area. So someone just bought uh, Middlebury down in Connecticut and intends to resuscitate that. So d- have you seen- Woodbury. Woodbury, sorry. Um, Have you seen an evolution in the way that these environmental groups approach and oppose and and pick which projects they're going to oppose and and sort of uh, are are more willing to accommodate an existing facility and put more of their energy into into kind of preserving the, the vaster swaths of nature that remains? Yeah, I think in some respects, I think there's some folks that are, are so uh, far out there that they don't want to see the mountain be used at all. And, and our stance has always been just to use it wisely. We ended up building a sewer line that goes from here all the way to the city of Fitchburg uh, just to accommodate uh, everything. And we've done our best. We're upstream of a reservoir and we um, do our best to make sure that the water quality is perfect. We're doing turbidity readings. Um, in several locations throughout the course of the day. So we do everything in our power to run as clean an operation as we can, but sometimes it's still impossible to satisfy some of these groups. There was one group, for example, Stuart, that actually, it was uh, Christmas Eve during the, um, during the public review process that they knocked on my door and uh, they were Christmas caroling. I just thought it was a uh, you know, overserved neighbor. So I opened the door and next thing you know, they're shoving cameras in my face you know, saying save the trees and don't cut the trees. And and that's when my wife wanted me to go from mild-mannered, nice husband to like uh, Karate Joe and, and take them all out. <laughs> Obviously, <laughs> I just kind of said, hey, look, you guys, I'd be happy to meet with you anytime during the day, but we're just not going to, we're not going to deal with this right now. So um, that's, it, it is, it's difficult. And it, I think as a result, it just, you're reluctant to want to even think about proposing something else just because you don't want to go through that, that baloney. 
so is that was this having these old growth forest areas marked on the trail map was that one of the accommodations you made right i i joked that i said i wanted to be credited with discovering the old growth forest and this, this area was largely um farmed by uh sheep back in the day there was a lot of grazing pasture land there's stone walls all over the mountain uh, but there's just some older trees maybe 350 year old um uh, maple trees and so forth that the farmers decided not to cut and they were just near some cliff area. So um, that that turned this into an old growth forest, which is fine. You know, I, I think that we just have to understand we're we're lucky to be operating in a in a state park uh, situation like this. So it, it really uh, means that we have to balance the, you know, the skiers with the hikers, with the conservationists. So I, I think that we've struck that, that chord nicely now. And is that whole lawsuit and, and that past, is that why you don't have gladed runs, say, between your trails? You just don't yeah, want to trees? That's What's a good it? point. There's a, um, there's a clause in our lease, which I don't know how this got in there, and this was written back in the late 70s, but it says that skiers shall ski on the ski trails. So I'm not sure if, if someone had it out for you back then or what it is, but uh, <laughs> um, they, they there's that clause in there. And... I guess they're just concerned that there was going to be damage to some of the trees. But um, so we just have to be the proud owners of a skier that uh, that don't have uh, glade skiing. Although there's been a few times that maybe your son will sneak behind a tree or two and he might get a talking to by the rangers. But <laughs> yeah, yeah, I, they have the same same thing going on at Elk Mountain. Um, I cannot get a hold of them to ask them why if if it's uh, just a philosophical opposition or if they have. Uh, a lease clause as you do. What is your what is your current lease look like? I, I found it interesting that they tried to take away or cancel your lease. Was that ever a possibility? And and, and what does your current lease look like as far as how long are you locked in as operators? Um, the lease uh, will be renewed in 2041. Unfortunately, um, most of the authorities in at DCR, the, the uh, Department of Conservation and Recreation, respect us, the, the Boston politicians, local politicians, uh, as one fellow joked that they refer to us as the Cartwrights. They they love the job that we're doing here and, and really respect it. And so I know there's no way that we were in jeopardy of losing the lease. Um, uh, I, I like to think that that's true, but uh, Sierra Club uh, was just uh, just trying to make our, our life miserable. And I got along okay with them, them personally, um, nice enough guys, but, uh, they, uh, they can be tough, but fortunately we're, we're here for the long term. That's great to hear. All right. Let's talk about the mountain a little bit more. So you have a really top notch lift system, three high speed quads. Um, well, you know, that helps move all those skiers around that we talked about, but I imagine you're always thinking toward the future. So just taking a step back here, Jeff, what's your wish list for your lift system? You know, we, uh, we're not going to run the, um, the high-speed quad as long as the, our friends up there at, at Smugglers. You know, they, mm -hmm. our guys do a, a fantastic job of, of maintaining and replacing haul ropes when necessary and, and doing all the work on the, the grips and so forth. So um, it's still in fantastic shape, even though it is running day and night. Um, You're talking but, about Polar uh, you know, last Express, year, Jeff? Pardon me? You're talking about Polar Express? That's right. The Summit okay. Chairlift, yeah. Uh, went in, I think, in 94, right? So. Mm -hmm. um, 
last year when we saw some cancellations from, um, I think it was Vail, decided not to go through with some of theirs. I actually put a call into Doppelmayr and said, what do you think about, it would now be the time to think about doing a, a, a bubble six pack mm -hmm. here at the ski area. And um, they were excited about the idea of, of moving some product just because they, they, their crews and everyone was kind of ground to a halt with COVID. And then I thought uh, long and hard and said that would not the timing would would be tough if the project ever got shut down because of COVID, then you'd be missing a, a huge tooth on the on the mountain and not have a, a summit yeah. trailer for that year. So we uh, we decided to to hold back. And so we're still debating whether or not um, bubble would be appropriate here. We do have some adolescents that would love to have their initials in the bubble. Um, <laughs> And that kind of worries me that there's also concern about the, the wind effects on stationary lifts and, and some of the oscillation that, that occurs. So um, we still need to do some more research, but, you know, we're not afraid to continue to invest and, and we will be uh, in the not too distant future. Are you thinking six pack, though, regardless of a bubble? You know, it's one of those things when we first put in the high-speed quad, everyone's like, oh, my God, you're going to ruin the mountain. There's going to be too many people up there. So I'd anticipate people would be saying the same thing. Even if you you um, space the chairs appropriately and had the same capacity, they would still, um, you know, be uttering. So it's tough when you're spending millions of dollars and then there's people kind of concerned about the the effects of that. So we'd just have to do some, some checking just to see the loading efficiencies of the the six pack versus the, the four pack. Yeah. The rule of thumb I always hear is one trail per seat and I'm seeing six trails off the summit. So it seems like it could work, but what do I know? Um, you know, one right. interesting thing they're doing up at, uh, at Waterville Valley, as I'm sure you're aware, is they're building their new high speed six parallel to their high speed four. And then they're going to take down the four when the, when the six turns on. And I believe they did the same thing at Wyndham. They did. So is that something you've thought about or, or does your, your uh, geography just not allow for it? Topography? We actually, that was part of our original expansion. We did have a redundant lift plan to go in. And then that's when the old growth forest uh, was discovered and that nixed that. So we had to keep any any potential land clearing below that that buffer zone. So no, that, that sadly that, that can't happen. Yeah, Polar Express Quad is really interesting because it's it's about a 30 year old lift but your hours, I mean, like you said, you go from 7.30 in the morning until 10 o'clock at night for about five months. So I would imagine that lift has about 60 years worth of Colorado <laughs> lift life on it, right? Because they run from, from nine to four and they shut it down. So how many hours do you have on that thing? That's a good question. I'll have to uh, look into that. I'm going to have to, uh, you're, you're shaming me into buying a new <laughs> lift here. So I'll, I'll call... <laughs> Doppelmeyer right after I hang up with you guys. <laughs> All right. Just don't send me the bill. <laughs> uh, you know, it's, it's interesting, Jeff, I, I, that, um, that Polar Express is, is uh, a sponsored lift, like a branded lift, right? By yeah. Polar Beverages. I, I don't know if any money actually exchanges hands there, but, but it brings up this interesting idea. Why don't more ski areas do that? Because it seems like an easy passive revenue stream. You have this thing that's costing you money to run all year, why not stick an ad on it? You know, I know some people don't really love that and there's a purity element to it, but we've been doing it with sports stadiums for years. And I think if you have a revenue opportunity, why not use it? So it's, just tell us about that lift sponsor and, uh, and, and why you haven't done it with more lifts and why you think other people don't do it. Um, we actually did it with the uh, Monadnock that actually, when you come out here, you'll see that that is actually oh, great. Uh, sponsored by Rollstone Bank. 
and uh, they've been really good about uh, loaning money for snowcats, uh, buses, and uh, even mortgages uh, for for the family and employees. So they're uh, they're a great great outfit. And uh, you know, I, for a while they were doing ads on lift towers, and I drew the line at that point. I was like, we don't want to see that that you know all messed up up on the on the lift towers. So I think they will will just stop it at the at the lift terminals, and I think that's enough of the commercialization of of the mountain you know what i mean mm-hmm. and well why do you think we don't see that more elsewhere uh well you have the american express at, at stratton i think there's uh, several other places that do have some of these uh the naming rights to hmm. more clever operators and, and better relationships and and uh so who knows maybe we'll see more of it later on so the manadoc that you just uh just mentioned that's a 300 foot vertical rise, but it's an express quad. I, that might be the shortest high speed lift in New England. Correct me if I'm wrong. Uh, but what made you go detach there? It's one of those things that we just looked at how many stops um, that we had and, and, and misloads. You know, trying to get the beginner skier up there. And I tell you, ski school was absolutely delighted with that. Somebody would come yeah. up to me and say that now that when they're teaching a lesson, they could give the students uh, a couple more rides knowing that the lift is actually going to make it up there in the um, the five minutes that, that it would take and also otherwise it would be 10 minutes and then you'd have stops so they're really you know part of our effort is to really do a good job with the beginner skier and uh, converting these folks and we've done a much better job these people are really learning well on that lift because it, it's one of the best uh, teaching areas in the northeast i would say yeah, it makes such a difference, Jeff. And actually, yesterday, I took my daughter up to the Catskills. And first, we went to Bel Air. And they didn't have the lower mountain open. So I don't know if you're familiar with Bel Air. But you take the gondola up. And then you ski down deer run to the side. And they have this old lift called Tomahawk. I don't know how old it is. It looks like it's about 100 years old. And it's a fixed grip lift. And it comes around so fast. And then it, it takes, I don't know, an hour to go up the mountain and, and you can see that it runs parallel to the gondola and gondola is just flying by. And, uh, and then when you get off, it's like this very treacherous, um, unloading platform where you have to like really pull the way fast or else the chair will just knock you down. Right. So, so we did that. And then we, uh, the only one trail open. So we just skied there for a couple hours. Then we drove over to Wyndham and Wyndham has their brand new six pack and it's just so beautiful. And you get in there and you ski in and it, it comes around slow and you just kind of sit down leisurely and then it zooms you up the mountain and then it stops and <laughs> takes you off. So I, I see what you're saying it, it, because you had in there before, right? A fixed grip triple. So, so that's just, that, that's a tough, tougher machine, like the learning curve for, for the people who are trying to ski those green trails over there. Yeah, this is uh, the people are, are so excited. And it seems like with those fixed grips, the only time they're going fast is when uh, they're coming and hitting you in the back of the lake. They, <laughs> They That's obviously right. they're they're effective, but um, we just really love the idea of, of the high speed quad. And and one of the other things that's happened is obviously our customers are really getting a lot of skiing in in, in the four hour sessions, and so they can they can get a good workout and then get back to their home and do some of the chores that they they need to get done or or play some of the other activities that they they wanted to do. So it's one way that they can really max out their experience here at Wachusett. So what'd you do with that old triple? Did you sell the chairs, sell the lift? Yeah, that ended up going to Eagle Brook School in the Berkshires. Oh, cool. oh nice. Talk okay. about lucky kids. Yeah, yeah, no, that's amazing. And, and they'll know how to use it. <laughs> right. Um, yeah. So a bit further up the mountain, you put the, this was your your most recent expansion, the Vickery Bowl triple. 
which I believe was the old Minuteman line. Uh, just talk about the process of relocating that lift. And, and an interesting point here is is Minuteman was was 600 vertical feet. I don't know the length. Vickery Bowl looks looks considerably smaller. So I'd imagine you had a lot more lift than you needed. But just talk about that whole process of moving that. Yeah, that was all part of uh, in order to increase our capacity. As I say, we were turning people away at nine in the morning when our capacity was 3,200 skiers. So uh, snow engineering uh, felt that by putting that pod in there and having that area set up for uh, the park kids and the, the race kids that we were able to get uh, that many more skiers onto the hill at, at that time. So that was it was really a compromise. One of the trails is called Piece of Cake, and that's kind of a tongue-in-cheek reference to the 10-year environmental uh, review process that we went through. So, <laughs> so amazing. Um, it actually, it, it works out well and, and it just runs uh, during those, uh, the peak overflow times. So that was your last expansion. Do you, do you think that you will ever expand again or, 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 or is it just not worth the headache to even try? I think that I would want to uh, sit down with the various nonprofits, whether it's Mass Audubon and Sierra Club, and just make sure that we're all on the same page. Obviously, there's a lot of people that love to ski up here, and we just need to come to some sort of agreement beforehand rather than get into a food fight with those folks, um, you know, through the whole permit process. Do you feel like those relationships are getting better over the time? Over time, I think that they they do um, respect. There's a lot of folks that that are up here skiing, and and they realize that they, you know they they like the fact that there's a clause in our lease that says that one percent of the gross goes into a land acquisition trust fund. So over the years, we've been able to acquire um, in conjunction with the state uh, over 800 acres in the throughout the Commonwealth and, and around um, this area. And there's also uh, $2 million sitting in the, in the bank account ready to be deployed to, to acquire more open space. So it really was a, a, a nice clause that was written into the lease back in the in the 70s. So I, I think that, you know, they do respect the operation for sure. Amazing. And, and did they choose which land is acquired with that money or, or do you? Yeah, well, on paper, I'm supposed to sign off on it, but they they can just ultimately kind of decide where it goes. So yeah, it's it's mostly their call. All right, let's talk about grooming. You watch you sit as one of the only mountains in the country that grooms twice a day. This is so amazing. I, I, I can't even believe you do it. it it's is such a huge experiential additive thing. I, re- I remember one time when I was at Beaver Creek and they do this, they groom in the middle of the day. And there was this fleet of six groomers just going down the mountain. And I was just skiing behind them. It was the most wonderful turns I've ever had. Of course it's Colorado snow. So, so that didn't hurt, but, but just talk about this. Why do you groom twice a day? When did you start doing this? Uh, and, and how do you, how do you justify it? Just imagining the cost of this. It's one of those things that um, it's amazing how happy the customers are when they know that they're going to be getting first tracks at um, six o'clock or five o'clock, whenever we happen. So we close the trails off mm. and um, <clears throat> as they groom it, then the patrol will, will drop the rope and uh, then they, everyone will uh, go down the hill. But if it's one of these things that we've been doing, it's probably been 15 years now, and it probably costs us $100,000 a year. And, um, but it's one of those things that just separates ourselves. You get back to the reader survey, and it's just one of those kind of things that just makes everyone so happy. You don't know how many times people will come up to me in the middle of summer. It's like, 
I uh, I was there with my daughter, and we were the first guys to go down Rouse Run after mm-hmm. you just robed it. So they, they really it does make the experience that much better. And and part of it now, Stuart, is we're just trying to bring that high quality snow that you experience out at Beaver Creek back to Massachusetts, and that's one of the ways that we're able to do it. Obviously, with the traffic that we get, it's it's a good way to give back to the customers. Yeah, you, you got to somehow convince your industry peers, you need to give like a TED talk on this or something, because it's the, the, the typical midwinter Northeast experience is if it hasn't snowed in a while, you get there and the mountain is groomed beautifully because they've invested a lot in grooming equipment. The base is good. It's covered top to bottom. But by 11, 1130, it's, it's ice patches everywhere. It's skied off. And, and until then, in, until you come back the next day, it's just going to keep getting worse and worse unless it miraculously started snowing. So th- there's there's an experiential part of this that really sets Wachusett apart from any, I don't know anyone else in New England that does this. I think Gunstock might still do it. I'm not sure. But um, thank you for the compliment. We'll, yeah. we'll keep it up. It, it, so t- talk about your grooming fleet. I'd imagine you got, got quite, a, quite a monster fleet if you're able to groom the entire mountain midday. And we're into it. You know, one of the things we, um, even though we're just a thousand foot of vertical roughly, is uh, we ended up getting a winch cat that would really help us um, for the race trail that we have. The Smith Walton Trail doubles as a race trail. So in order, I mean, the skiers and snowboarders do a good job of pushing that snow down the hill throughout the course of the day. So it's it's the, the really skilled operators that we have that are able to push it all back up the hill and get it set up properly. So we have that and then uh, five regular free groomers, you know, that just can, you know, with the tillers and so forth. And then we actually have a piston bullet that's been converted over to a bucket cat to, to work on lifts and uh, all the lighting systems that we have. Nice. And, and do you, that midday groom, do you redo all the trails? No, it's uh, a couple trails, uh, three trails per lift system. And there's always, you know, radio chatter and what trail is open, race training on one trail. So, the patrol and rangers do a good job of kind of making sure that everything is done safely and efficiently. But there is a fair amount of idle time as you're waiting for, you know, some of the slow pokes to get off the hill. Yeah, it's, uh, you know, it's such a smart way to operate. And, and you go back to, uh, to that I like to ski in the trees. And the reason is, is, you know, I like groomers as much as anybody. If I can get first chair, I'll, I'll ski groomers for an hour, two hours. But once it gets skied off, it's just not that much fun. And the snow in the trees is still just fine, you know, unless we've had a refreeze. So that's what what makes me gravitate toward that part of the mountain is that is that grooming is an imperfect solution to a persistent problem in skiing, which is that snow quality is not forever, right? It changes throughout the day, and and this is just a really good reset. And I hope that this catches on as an industry trend because this is uh, it's really amazing. Um, snowmaking, obviously, a very powerful snowmaking system seems like. Uh, with Wachusett Lake right at the bottom there, you probably have no shortage of water. And your father once said that Wachusett would make snow every time the temperature is right. Quote, um, what does your snowmaking calendar look like these days? How late in the season do you make snow? Uh, well, we get going as soon as uh, we get cold weather in November. And we have done it just for PR purposes, kind of towards the end of March. You know, it's just hard to sit on your hands uh, when the temperatures are in the teens. And uh, so if, if, it's necessary. We'll get out there and, and kind of after February vacation and make snow where we're necessary. But for the most part, we, we try to uh, load it up with about four feet of snow. In fact, we have that snow right system that uh, will 
tell us exactly how much snow we have all over oh, the cool. mountain. And, and that's a good way to just kind of make sure that everything is, is filled in. And we're lucky that we have the unlimited water for the longest time. We're upstream of that reservoir and it was kind of a battle back in the day, but uh, I, I signed a long-term agreement with the, the mayor, um, Mary Whitney, back uh, way back when. And uh, so that entitles us to buy water from the city of Fitchburg and Carolyn will, will uh, voice the opinion that we're effectively just renting it because we, we um, make the snow and then we get the rainstorm or a thaw and then it goes flying back down the hill yep. again and we buy it back and send it back up again. But we're, we're blessed that we have that, that really good supply. Well, no one is ever going to accuse you of not giving what you skiers the longest possible season. As, as I mentioned, your hours, you're open 14 and a half hours a day during the heart of the season. And last year you beat out Killington to become first in the East to open. I, you know, that was a little bit of an anomaly because Killington couldn't do their usual North Ridge, you know, upper part of the mountain. They wanted to wait till they had top to bottom. But how 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 did that feel just to be tops in the East for that one season? Well, I mean, I, I, I actually reached out to Rob, uh, the president of, uh, of Killington, and I said, I hope you don't mind that we're we're bragging and tooting our horn about this thing. He's like, no, that's the least of my problems. I think really <laughs> the only reason that we were able to to beat him that uh, that year is because he had so many restrictions due to COVID and the yeah. state of Vermont was really being very cautious. So mm-hmm. I don't think you'll ever see us come close to uh, to doing that again. So it's just a, a once in a lifetime opportunity, but I, I, I hated to be super boastful, but he was, he was pretty cool with it. No, I, I, I thought it was cool. I, I think everybody did. It's uh it's, it was a nice moment. And then a couple of years back in 2015, you actually opened Victory Bowl in May for a day of spring skiing. Um, was that just an anomaly and you just had a lot of snow that year? Is that something you would ever do again if you had the snow? You know, it's, it's just back to the, uh, the being passionate about it. We decided that that would be a fun thing to do. It's kind of like uh, Herman Dupre did that at Seven Springs. I think he actually covered snow with hay and then mm-hmm. spread it out and skied Fourth of July. So wow. it's just, it's one of those things that you just want to do once in a while. I think it's kind of a, a one and done. It was, it was fun to do, but one of the, we just can't, one year I think we stayed open until uh, there was the 22nd of, of April. Mm. And we, we soon realized that we're not Killington, you know, given how far south we are, our elevation and so forth, we just do not lend ourselves well to that, that long season. So we'll definitely try to make it into uh, one or two weekends into April, and then it's time to kind of move on. All right, let's uh, let's talk about season passes here. So for the past two years, and it may be longer, uh, the past two years when I've been really tracking this, you've cut off season pass sales after selling a certain amount. Just talk about why you put limits on the number of passes sold. Was that a COVID thing, or or, or is there a bigger story there? It was it was a COVID thing. You know, we were looking at um, what was going on down in Australia and New Zealand, and there were some skiers down there that actually refunded their season passes because you don't know how many uh, customers are going to be able to come at, at one time and the reservation system was too cumbersome to really uh, come up with so that's why we we really have it, the COVID has really changed things now people are working from home so that means they can work from the chairlift here so it, it's just the one thing we do want to do is just make sure that we don't um, cause a log jam at the base area and just have too many cars coming in we're just respectful of our customer and we just want to make sure that it's a good experience from the minute they arrive to to on the hill so that's why we've we've caught up those past sales the other thing is it's interesting to look at the usage and conversations and, and focus groups we've had with our customers they basically 
they've had enough after with the high-speed quads. They've had enough skiing after about four hours. A lot of them have to go back to their other, you know, chores and everything else that they want to do, and um, they're happy that, that that's all their skiing. And we just had to break it up so that we could actually share the mountain with other folks. Mm-hmm. Because the, with the COVID, we restricted instead of 4,000 skiers at a time, it was only 2,000. Mm-hmm. So uh, by restricting the number of people, because some people were just going off the chairlift by themselves, and uh, so we just didn't want to have too many people. So we came up with that system just to share the mountain with everyone and gave everyone an opportunity to ski last year. So you kept, you kept the season pass limits this year, and you also kept the sessions that you just referred to last year where you had, we would cut the ski day into four sessions. So, you know, I, I realize COVID is still with us and, and we have uh, maybe another scary variant working its way through the system now. Uh, so, but I think we're all sort of recalculating and, and, and deciding, you know, what are the plans? It definitely looks different from last year. So talk about the decision to, to keep these adjustments from last year in place, even though the, the threat of COVID is, is different in many ways than it was a year ago. Yeah. I think in retrospect, we're we're glad that we uh, we we hung in with this limited pass policy because this Omicron variant, which actually there used to be a snow gun named Omicron back in the day, so it's appropriate that that has made a resurgence. But um, uh, so I think that this has worked out well. Let's hope we get through the season without uh, too much of an issue now with with shutdowns and so forth. It's it's just such a, a fluid situation that we just have to be prepared to deal with anything here. And do you think that these adjustments are things that you'll continue to do in a post-COVID world? Let's say it's five years down the road. Do you do you it, it, have you seen enough benefits in limiting passes and having sessions that this is sort of a new operating model, or is it too soon to say? You know, I think that this will be the year to just see how um, it uh, reacts, and and we're very close to the customers, and if we get a lot of uh, pushback and so forth, uh, we'll adjust the ways. But we uh, we have done gone back to the. The double session and the pricing is actually closer to what it was in, in previous years. So if you do want to ski your, you know, your 7:30 to 4 o'clock, you can you can buy that that price. That so we're giving the the opportunity to the customer to decide what what she wants to do. I was also looking at your lift ticket prices; are quite affordable compared to your Pier Mountains. And you know, I've been writing a lot about this recently in the $269 lift ticket at Steamboat and and elsewhere where they're over $200. And, and we're not approaching that in New England, but certainly many are getting past the 150 point. Uh, you know, it's not unusual to see over $100 at places like even Jiminy Peak and Pat's Peak. So so you've kept your prices low. Why? Um, we always started off as a, a value uh, proposition. We're, we recognize that uh, some of the folks, you know, don't have the money that others do. And we just wanted to keep it quasi affordable. Um, when you also take a look at what you're getting at Steamboat, the number of acres and number of lifts, that's probably a better value than, than our price. So we just want to make sure that, that we're not too high and uh, we try to keep it quasi affordable just so that we can, we can be all inclusive. And your uh, season pass comes with a nice little coalition of pass partners. We're seeing a lot of these reciprocal deals, uh, in particular out West, though some Eastern skiers are starting to get into the game where your season pass holders will get a certain amount of days at another ski resort and their season pass holders will get a certain amount at yours. Just talk about those coalitions. You know, you have some free days, you have some discounted days. Uh, just talk about that package of benefits you've created for your season pass holders and why that's important to keep involving. 
a lot of those uh, were formed out of personal uh, relationships that we've had with various area operators. You know, we were friends with the, the folks uh, Ono that uh, used to run Alta. So a lot of those uh, deals were structured uh, back then. I think some of them came out of the arrangement that Brian Fairbank and, and uh, the folks out at Crystal put together, the Mountains of Distinction. So that's an, an offshoot of that. And so we're just always thinking about how to make sure that we give our folks um, more bang for their dollar and, and let them get off and experience a, a bigger, bigger mountain. And I think a lot of the other big areas uh, don't mind seeing some of the Wachusett customers, kind of the, the feeder system, go up to their areas and I'm sure some of them will uh, will never come back, but you know that's <laughs> part of our job is to make the world a better place, right? Do your pass holders like these? Do they use them? They do. A lot of them are, are unaware that they're there, but a lot of times people do really take advantage of the the deal. And so, one more reason that our our customers are very happy and and decide to send the reader survey, right? Yeah, there's there's a there's a nice little bonus trip here to Tahoe, so you get days at Diamond Peak and Homewood. Um, it, you know, I don't know how deliberately you're thinking about these things, but but if I was a Wachusa pass holder, I'd really be thinking about, oh, I could go out to Tahoe and 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 ski those couple nice ski areas. Is this is this something you're trying to grow over time, where where you want to have this this extra bonus of all these days, other other big places, or or is it or is it just something that okay, you know, if we if we happen to have two ski areas that our pass holders can take a vacation to, great. Yeah, I think it's more the latter. We just uh, will throw them. I mean, it's not like we spend uh, the month of August trying to call out to all these different guys, but they just happen to take place. For example, we had one last year with Talos. A friend of a friend introduced us to the owner. So it's fun to just have those different relationships and, and be able to share uh, our customers and let them see these different resorts. We haven't done the Indy Pass. I know that's always one of your favorite things, but once again, it's just difficult to really kind of control are the inflow. It's just nice to make sure that we know who's coming and, and what number of customers we have so that we don't get over overridden, if you know what I mean. Yeah. Well, let's talk about the multi-mountain mountain passes for a moment, because I, I think this is really interesting that Wachusett was on the Max Pass, and that was the coalition of Boyne and Powder and uh, Intrawest that preceded the Icon Pass. And the Max Pass went away when the Icon Pass came on, and some Max Pass partners joined up with the Icon Pass, and many did not. So why didn't Wachusett join the Icon Pass? Because we weren't asked. Would you have if you were asked? Uh, you know, that's actually a good question. The um, We were actually one of the busier places for the folks at uh, on the Max Pass. I think we mm-hmm. were ranked number eight in terms of attendance just because mm-hmm. of the, the abundance of skiers in the, in the Boston metro area. Um, so I'm sure that they would love to have us who have had brief conversations, but once again, now it gets back to the capacity. We're small compared to a lot of these other guys that can handle some of the larger crowds. And uh, the last thing we want to do is uh, a disservice to the folks at, at um, you know, Icon and, and uh, Epic by having too many people here. So it, it wouldn't serve anyone really well, if you know what I mean. It's interesting because you're you're not just speculating. I mean, you were on the MaxPass partnership for for I don't I don't know how long. Maybe you remember at least a couple of years. So, w- what did you see from being part of that product that made you say, you know what, Wachusett does not need to be part of a multi mountain coalition? I enjoyed being part of that group, and it was it was nice to see a lot of folks that are accustomed to skiing Stowe and these other 
or, and Stratton come to Wachusett. Even though we did a bunch of TV advertising, radio advertising, um, we still couldn't get those folks to try it. But once they had it on their pass, they came out. So it, it served as a good way to, uh, to introduce a lot of these folks that were reluctant to come out and, and try it. So I think that it really promoted Wachusett and introduced us to the, the 617 and 781 area code. So it, it, it worked out well, and I think now is we're, we're fine kind of doing things the way we are right now. Because Max Pass was, was five days per resort. Indie Pass is only two days, which seems like it would actually work better with your model because you're, the, the chances of it cannibalizing season passes are zero. And if you throw some blackout days in there, you can really control when those folks show up. But it sounds like it, it's not something you're interested in right now. The good thing is that we're busy as heck as yeah. we are right now. So, <laughs> right. so do we really want to confuse ourselves? I mean, I love those guys and respect all those operators. And, and you know, we're not going to say no forever. But uh, right now, everything seems to be working okay. So it's it's not broken yet. Okay. We're really curious to get your point of view, Jeff, on just the changing ski area landscape or ski management landscape in New England over the last five years. So you rewind five years, Vale wasn't here. They didn't buy Stowe until 2017. Altera didn't exist. You had the Max Pass, you had the Peak Pass, you had a few little things like this, but what, none of those passes had the heft of the Icon or the Epic Pass. So Vale comes trotting in, they get Stowe, they pick up Okimo and Sunapia a year later, then they buy Peak and now they're just this monster. And they drop off, you know, the Epic Pass is already pretty affordable. Right. And then they drop these New England specific passes in or these Northeast specific passes that are 479. And then there's a midweek version for 359. The Icon Base Pass has all these big, tough, burly mountains on it, like Sugarloaf and Sugarbush and Killington. And that's a, you know, that's about the same price as your season pass. It's a little bit more expensive. So I'm just curious, first of all, Jeff, just what's your reaction as you watch this consolidation and these big passes come in and them undercutting the locals on prices. How are you processing this whole thing? What are your thoughts on it? I think that they've done a wonderful job of really making uh, skiing affordable for the pass holders. And I'm seeing a lot of our customers that will have both of their passes in addition to our pass. So they, they've really uh, kept things affordable for uh, the, the, uh, the families around here. So I think that overall it's been really a godsend to, uh, to the industry and, and I'm just amazed at how effective the, the whole program has worked out for them. Yeah, you know, I think when I was first analyzing this in Vale's entrance into the Northeast, I was putting too much of an emphasis on price and not really considering a lot of other factors. And I was writing about your past one day and, and you wrote to me, and I think this was the first time we communicate and you said, Hey, listen, man, <laughs> we sell thousands of these passes. Like don't, you know, we're not going out of business because, because Vale is selling an Epic pass. And, and it looks as though you sold out two years in a row, your, your pass sales are as strong as ever. So clearly there are other factors at work. Why do you think that Wachusett single mountain season pass continues to work as a viable product in this landscape where we're, we're, we're seeing uh, these bargain passes rise up that give you access to places like Whistler and Jackson Hole, is, which is something that you just can't offer. Right. So much of it has to do with our proximity. As I said, you know, with 8 million people within an hour's drive, um, it's just so convenient for these folks. So um, people feel that our pass is a good value. They're able to ski up here any t from four to uh, 100 times in a season. So it's just, it's worked out really well. If we were 
um, up north and a lot longer drive, then we would be having to do something different. But we're just so lucky that we're blessed with so many people so close to us. Yeah, I really, if you look across the state, I really liked Berkshire East's response to this landscape. And, and I don't know if I'm characterizing that in a fair way, because I, I can't say that they bought Catamount because Vale was moving in, but it sort of worked out that way for the timing. So let me just talk about it as a, as a sort of hypothetical. So Berkshire East bought Catamount and then a, a new group bought Biscay and they added Biscay onto the pass with Berkshire East and Catamount. So now you have three mountains all within 45 minutes um, of each other. Well, all there in Western Massachusetts, they're all kind of different mountains. Berkshire East a little wild, Catamount's a little, a uh, little bit more of a racer place and the Biscay has got a, uh, you know, it's like a local learning mountain. So it, it was, it's a, it's a nice little regional pass. It's cheaper than an Epic or Icon pass. It's below 500 bucks, I think, to start out in the spring. And, and I'm just curious as, as you look at this, it, it, have you ever thought about buying another mountain? Because you, you know how to run one. Um, you know, it sounds like you have a lot of, uh, like a pretty big brain trust that would be able to manage these things at scales. You look at the Fairbank family, they did the same thing. They haven't put their mountains on a pass, but they're, they've owned and operated multiple mountains. But but have you considered that as, as sort of a response to sort of build this this regional network of mountains that that you could create this little pass as, as Berkshire East has done? We've uh, kicked the tires of probably over a dozen different skiers that, that were in play mm-hmm. and had made offers and uh, in some respects, I'm kind of glad that they weren't accepted because it, it would just complicate our lives that much more. Right. It, it, we were almost like the Stu Leonard's uh, supermarket in Connecticut that was written up in, in search of excellence. You know, it's just when you're there in one shop, you can just do a wonderful job of keeping And Then it's just we just wanted to avoid the distraction. And also with the family, uh, the strategy was to really grow the soft drink company. And uh, so. Uh, Brother Ralph has made a ton of acquisitions, and uh, we went from uh, wondering whether or not we could drive into the suburbs of Boston and deliver in my lifetime to now having our product available on the shelves in California and Mexico and Canada. So we're in all 50 states. So wow. the growth has really gone into the into the beverage business. And I um, I was commenting with one of the uh, areas that Mike Krongel, who who worked with uh, ASC. I said, what do you think about our strategy now with growing soft drink? He said, you know, it's a lot easier for me to just walk to my local supermarket and buy a polar seltzer off the shelf than it is for me to get in the car and drive three hours and, and go to this other resort. So I'm pleased with our strategy. Uh, I'm not to say that uh, that we wouldn't um, acquire another area, but it has to be the right deal uh, at the right price because the last thing we want to do is, is go sideways like some of the other predecessors have. You've seen... You know, you know uh, George Gillette, wonderful guy, but I think sometimes they they just get into that crazy bidding war, and then mm-hmm. then they jeopardize the uh, their wonderful companies. So what you're trying to tell me here, Jeff, is you are not bidding on JP. Well, they didn't accept our offer. Did Did you bid on it last year? We no uh, way. two years ago. They, they and I'm surprised, but that's wow. That would have been that's huge. just between us. I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> what What are but some other skiers you've looked at? My daughter Courtney really loved that place. So we, Everybody the last does. thing I wanted to do was see that thing. You know, uh, see you buy that thing for uh, ten million dollars after they invested all that much uh, money on the thing. So we threw a, a respectable number, and I'm I'm surprised that they they didn't take it. They're probably in violation of the non-disclosure agreement. But oh well. 
<laughs> well, they, they didn't accept my offer either, Jeff. <laughs> right. <laughs> Which was unlimited podcast exposure for the next <laughs> two years. Okay. Uh, what, what, what are some of the other scenarios you've looked at? Um, what's the next question? <laughs> <laughs> you know, one of the things I was thinking is, and now's a good time for an advertisement for you. I've never, I, you, as I said to you before, you remind me of I, William Berry, who uh, I think he started the um, uh, whatever that, that publication that, that they're doing now. Uh, the, the name escapes me now, but um, you bring so much passion to it and you're really into skiing. You really know the business. I would, I would suggest that you do um, take a page out of my father's book and just do a, a highly levered uh, transaction, acquire one of the areas that you love and, um, and just make this come through. So I'd be the first to sign up for your GoFundMe page and, and make this thing work. So I, I look forward to seeing you run an area because you've got so much energy. Let's let's put it to work. <laughs> well, Jeff, I, I, I greatly appreciate that. Um, that. That means a lot, especially coming from someone who's been in the industry so long. One, one thing that I have have decided after doing this for a couple of years is that I do not want to run a ski area because I think it's way too hard. <laughs> I have so much respect for what you guys do and, and just dealing with all the stuff. But I think the main reason is I like to ski too many different places, right? I like to hop around and I, I think I hit 40 or 50 places last year and I like to just see how it all goes. And I'm, I'm pretty comfortable in the peanut gallery. You never know how life will go, but right now I'm, uh, I'm good in this seat. You know something uh, that's a good good comment and i think it's a good place to end i'm feeling sorry for your listeners now someone's going to have to listen to to me for how long <laughs> has it been now or 42 minutes you're uh you're a wonderful podcaster and i'd love to come on again but i just don't want to wear out my welcome with you i think it's it's we've kind of we're losing listeners i think there's only one guy listening we need to also get um uh, michael berry on have you asked him yet uh, no, I'm, I'm not acquainted with him. If, if, you, if you're able to introduce me to him, I'd love that. Will do. Okay. All right. Well, well I Jeff, I cannot thank you enough. Yeah. What's that? I was going to say I was thanking you as well. So uh, it's, been, it's been fun. I love talking about this, and I look forward to skiing with you sometime soon. Yeah, yeah. I, I can't thank you enough for coming on, and I, I wish you a great season, and I can't get, wait to get up there. I think what I'm going to do is wait till you're 100% going and, and just pop up for a day and, uh, and wear my legs out on those high-speed quads. Sounds good. That's Jeff Crowley, president of Wachusett Mountain, Massachusetts. Man, that was so good, Jeff. So damn good. You see why everyone loves that place. You probably love it now, even if you have no intention of ever going there. Let's do that again, Jeff. I promise I will not take up half your day next time. Thank you very much for doing that, especially the day after opening weekend. And thank you all very much for listening. Got a headliner next week. Steamboat President and COO Rob Perlman. After that, we'll have Black Mountain of Maine and a couple of new ones that I'm announcing today. A focus on trail map maker Intermountain, based out in Canada, and the comeback of Hickory, New York. Very excited for all of those. And while you're waiting for those to drop, remember to subscribe to the free Storm Skiing newsletter at stormskiing.com. And follow along with the storm on Twitter or Instagram at Storm Ski Journal. Thank you all for listening. Stay well, stay safe. I'm Stuart Winchester, and I will talk to you again very soon. The Storm Skiing Podcast is a Quicksilver Films production.